coming up next on the Wetfly Swing podcast. There's this this feeling like, oh, I got to shoot because they're they're like encouraging you to do things too fast. So a lot of times people will throw the gun up to their face, generally point in the direction of the bird and bang, bang, shoot two shells. And you were totally not on target. You rushed it. You made a bad gun mount and the bird is now flying away, still plenty within range. And you're standing there with an empty gun. That was Nick Larson with a big reminder to relax on your next hunting trip. We're heading out bird hunting today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. If you have a topic in any part of the outdoor space and you'd like to hear, you can send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. As always, we love digging into the fly fishing topics, but we always love mixing it up. So uh, send me a message there or check in online on social media. Today's episode is sponsored by Fishhound Expeditions, putting together remote Alaskan wilderness float trips for that big, humongous trip of a lifetime. This is not your lodge style trip, but this is the great Alaskan wilderness float trip. Adam and the crew have it dialed in. You're going to get some great camping, some great fires, uh, some great fishing. It's got it all. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash fishhound, F-I-S-H-H-O-U-N-D, to connect with the crew and Adam and put together that huge trip. Today's episode is also sponsored by Jackson Hole Fly Company, a new kind of online fly shop. They design and manufacture their own high-quality fly rods, reels, gear, and over a thousand fly patterns. I've been enjoying my trout rod and reel from Jackson. This thing is clean and smooth, and I'm loving it. I'm going to be taking it out on that next trip and getting a little more action with the Jackson fly rod. You can get 25% off your next fly rod at jhflyco.com slash swing right now. That's jhflyco.com slash swing. Nick Larson takes us into Upland Bird Hunting 101 today. We discover how to hunt birds even if you don't have a dog, the best shotgun to get started with, and why it's not all about the 12 gauge. Nick gets into that a little bit today. We get into the guns and talk a little bit about what you need to get started. Time to get fired up to swing up for some birds. So without further ado, here we go. Nick Larson from birdshotpodcast.com. How's it going, Nick? It's going great today, Dave. Thanks for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you on an episode of your podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, putting some time together here to dig into some bird hunting. Um, you know, upland. I've done a little bit of upland hunting out there, and uh, and I know there's a good chunk of our audience that also is interested in in upland and and and, uh, and hunting. You know, and so I want to dig into that today. Uh, before we get into it, you also have a great podcast, the Birdshot Podcast. Uh, I want to dig into that as well, but talk about how you first, how'd you get into hunting? Take us back real quick there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I used to kind of say on my podcast, I had the easy way into hunting, which anybody familiar with hunting and some of the conversations around it will know. I got, I got started by my dad and my uncle, you know, my, my family, family hunted. I wouldn't say they weren't nearly as avid of a, of a bird hunter as I am. Uh, my dad grew up in North Dakota and did a little wing shooting and bird hunting, but it was pretty, uh, pretty humble, I think as, as far as he was concerned. And anyways, he, he gave me the opportunity to go grouse hunting when I was like 10 years old. And I, I have vivid memories of that first day 
and went out with my dad and uncle and cousins. And I can remember the first grouse I saw and like, there was just something about that bird that I, like, I don't know what it did to me, but it, it started me on this, this lifelong path or obsession, I guess would be the appropriate way to put it, uh, <laughs> with grouse. And, and that has kind of blossomed into the whole war. I became fascinated with upland hunting and, and bird dogs and took me a while to, to get my first bird dog. And yeah. we don't necessarily have to go into that whole tale, but today I'm, I'm upland bird hunting is my number one passion. Obviously I've got a podcast that focuses on it. So I'm kind of thinking about it every day. And, um, yeah, it just, uh, it all started with rough grouse hunting here in Northern Minnesota. There you go. Rough grouse. So that's very cool. And, and we've done a bunch of episodes, uh, around the Midwest that that's obviously a hot spot for fishing as well. And so, you know, hunting, fishing, it kind of goes together. So the bird dog is an interesting part. We're going to dig in, and I want to talk to you about the species because there's a bunch of different, uh, you know, bird species we could talk about here. Um, but the bird dog is an interesting one, right? Because, I mean, that seems like what a lot of people who bird hunt love. You know, they talk about that like, oh, man, I do this because of the dog. But um, I've never had a dog. I've hunted with people with dogs. But can you do this right off the top without a dog, or do you really need a dog to get out there for upland? you definitely can do it without a dog. And that's what I did for 20 years or so. Um, like the first, or I don't know if it was 15 or 20, but a long time I did that. And, and that's, I mean, I think I would say you could hunt any upland bird with, uh, without a dog, but some are going to be more, uh, approachable than others. And with rough grouse, the way that it works up here, we have, we've got logging roads and trails and we have enough access into the cover and into the places that the birds want to be. And they'll use these trails and these roads and you can use a lot of that to your advantage, which is what I would did. So you can walk real slow along a two track or a forest road and you can, you can get into grouse. And, and that's, that's really what the way I did it. Um, the dogs will change your life in, in hmm. many, many ways and, and for the better. And they've, they've completely, um, spoiled me to hunting without a dog. I, I would, you know, you'll, it's a very common thing. You'll hear people say, I would never go back to hunting without a dog. And I would, I would, it would be really hard for me to do that knowing what I know now and hunting, hunting with dogs, but you absolutely can do it. So I wouldn't let that be a, you know, be a stopping point for you, so to speak. Yeah, you can do it. Okay. And, and you, and you said, which, which state are you in now? I'm in Minnesota, Northern Minnesota. I live in Duluth, Minnesota, right on the tip of Lake Superior. And I got to say, I actually, yesterday I was, I was, we have a cabin in Wisconsin. I was driving, we went down there yesterday and I listened to your episode with, was name is Terry. He was from Ontario. Yeah. Terry Kluke. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that just, I really enjoyed it. I, nice. Some of my best like fishing memories and experiences are from Ontario. We used to go up there and fish walleyes and, and, uh, yeah, it's hunting and fishing are, you know, nearly synonymous growing up in this part of the world. And I, I grew up, uh, an outdoorsman. I do a lot less fishing now and I've just kind of, I've whittled away some of my hobbies with two young boys at home and yep. I'm kind of all in on the bird dogs and, and bird hunting. And, but I've, I have a special place in my heart for fishing and I, I like to think that it will, it will take up a bigger piece of my life at some point. <laughs> That's right. That's yeah. kind of what I think that's, I've been the opposite of you, you know what I mean? Cause I, right. I've, uh, I all, I love it all. And, and I really nailed down, you know, niche down into fly fishing cause it was yes. probably my biggest passion, but now I'm kind of slowly, you know, kind of expanding a little bit, right. As we, as we go. And this is one that actually, just like you said, I, when my first, let's say my first or second kid was born, I was just like, man, I just, you know, there's not enough time. So I, bird hunting was one of those things I kind of let slide, but I, but I'm hopeful that, you know, I can get back into it and, 
and Minnesota. So this is good. And, and well, let's take it to that. Let's just think there because you mentioned the grouse, and we have grouse. I'm not sure where they are around the country, but I know grouse are kind of spread out. Yeah. If we talk about grouse, maybe we could just start there because there's a bunch of different species. But you know, in Minnesota, is that the one species, or are there a bunch of bird species that people are out going for? Yeah, we've got we've got a few. Grouse is maybe the most common one thought of. If not grouse, it probably would be pheasant because as your guest Terry mentioned on that episode, Minnesota is in this interesting place where we're kind of on the break between the prairies of the plains and the northern forest. And as you go up into northeast Minnesota, you get into Boreal Forest and there's a lot of a lot of forest to the east as you go into Wisconsin and, and Michigan. So we're unique in that way where we've got we've got a multitude of species. We have sharp tailed grouse, we have roughed grouse, which again, the most common and most prevalent. Um, that's, that's what a lot of people are doing. Pheasants would be in the, in the Southern portion of Minnesota in that prairie country. And they've got woodcock, which is a migratory upland bird that we have lots of those and grouse and woodcock are a very, they're in many areas of the country. They're a mixed bag hunt. So you're going out into grouse and woodcock cover. Your dog goes on point. You don't know what's going to get up a grouse Hmm. or woodcock. There's some, you know, variability to that, but for the most part, um, grouse and woodcock tend to be a mixed bag hunt in a lot of areas. And, and then we've got some prairie chickens. That's, we don't have very many of those. That's a, a very small lottery hunt. Uh, we have spruce, spruce grouse, which is another less common species of grouse. You find them more and more as you get further North into the Boreal forest. I'm sure there's a bunch of them up by Terry up there in Ontario. Um, we have some of those, those kind of get mixed in like you're in your daily bag limit with rough grouse. Um, so, so you, you could go out and hunt rough grouse, woodcock and spruce grouse. And in some areas you could probably mix in a sharp tail grouse if you get far enough West, but we've got some variety here in Minnesota to answer your question. That's great. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. So, well, let, let's start there just with, you know, let's, let's start with grouse just as, as we go down this road here. So if we're, and we could just take it to Minnesota or, you know, wherever grouse are at, but what we're, you know, if somebody's here, like kind of maybe like me, they're, they're wanting to, you know, maybe they've done a little bit, but they want to kind of get back started. What do you recommend for somebody who's new to it? Is there a, you know, is there a resource where you can kind of go dig into it? Where's the starting point? Yeah, I think, I really think there's, there's still a lot of value in as a, like square one starting point to Google that species with the state, you know, so mm. I would Google mm-hmm. rough grouse, Minnesota, and hopefully end up on the department of natural resources or whoever's doing your licensing and regulations and stuff. That's really, I would start there. If you're, if you're, you know, relatively uneducated on anything, you want to obviously make sure you're going about it the right way. You got your licenses and paying attention yep. to seasons and bag limits and that kind of, you know, it's obvious stuff to, to folks listening to this kind of a podcast, but the states are still good at providing resources. And in Minnesota in particular, we've got what are called rough grouse management areas, I believe. And that's uh, various pieces of publicly accessible property around the state that are managed for rough grouse. And these will get brought up a lot of times when it comes to talking to folks getting started. They do get attention you know, they're out, they're listed, they're very specific that they're rough grouse habitat. So they will get hunting pressure. But in my experience, I've hunted a lot of them over the years and they are a great starting point for somebody that doesn't exactly know what they're looking for to go out, check out this property. They're usually going to be walking only. 
you're mm-hmm. not going to have ATVs and stuff, which which can be a concern. Um, you're you're going to have walking only access. They'll have trails. They'll have maps. A little bit more of a curated experience, right? For somebody nice. who's, who's yeah. just getting their feet under them, you go out there, and the thing you want to do the most when you're out there is observe. Use the power of observation to look at the trees, look at the habitat, look at the cover. What are you seeing? And especially if you flush a bird, pay attention to what's around. But you can then use that as as an example to go out and explore the millions of acres of of public land that we have access to, to try to find areas that would sort of replicate or, you know, replicate that experience. Because there's lots of places to go hunt ruffed grouse. That's what we have a lot of public access to, forested cover. So you can get out there and do it. But if you, but it, it, there's definitely a learning curve to learning where they live and how to find them. So that's where those yeah. rough grouse management areas can come in real handy. Gotcha. So that's a good start. And and where do you? So are, are you hunting kind of uh, like all over the country? Or where do you focus on your hunting if you talk about grouse? Yeah. So kind of going back to that sort of uh, whittling away some of my hobbies and, and focusing. I mean my where I live, I have access to excellent rough grouse hunting, some of the best around. Um, and that's just, you know, Northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, you know, the great lakes are often sort of thrown in a bucket as the place to go for rough grouse. And that's because we've got, we've got really a timber industry that is not without its challenges and struggles, but it's still pumping along and grouse need early successional forest habitat. Oh, a lot yeah. of, a lot of which is created through logging and active forestry and and sustainable forest management so that's a big part of it and that's why we have we have good resources and and land access so anyways so i'm hunting here and i can get a lot of my hunting in here and i'm happy doing that so i do that but as i mentioned i've kind of expanded and i will now go i mean of all the weeks you could be talking to me this is this is the week i'm on saturday oh this is it yeah saturday i'm going went out west for my first hunt of the year and this is something that again the dog sort of led me down this path and my exploration of of what's beyond my you know my grouse covers of of minnesota um i go out west in i've gone gone to north dakota montana hunt sharp-tailed grouse and hungarian partridge in september that's a it's a very common pilgrimage made by lots of upland bird hunters to go out to the prairies and they typically open earlier in September than some of our grouse seasons here. And there's a, there's a contrast between hunting grouse here where in September you've still got all the leaves are up. It's thick, it's hot. It's it's just not as enjoyable, but you can go out West and it can be hot out West too, but you're, you're walking short grass, you get to see the dogs run and you're hunting a different species. So I go out and do that. I've done a little bit of pheasant hunting. I've been to South Dakota, um, some, some regional travel. I've been down to Louisiana, uh, for work, I was down there a f- few years ago hunting woodcock. Uh, I mentioned earlier, woodcock are a migratory species, so they're spending their summers and nesting and breeding up here in this country, and then they all migrate south down to Louisiana, Texas. Um, they go down there, and so they their seasons open up later, obviously, to follow the migration. So I've been down there to hunt. I've hunted rough grouse in a few different states, but relatively speaking i haven't gone everywhere and done everything and again that kind of goes back to just i've got access to really great hunting here and at this point in my life i i got to make hay as close to home as i possibly can but i i definitely have begun to explore other opportunities and there's boy there's a lot of them i mean as everybody knows this country has a lot to offer when it comes to terrain topography cover habitat so yeah 
Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty diverse. That's always the challenge. Is yes, there's so many things you know, hunting, fishing, you know, you name it, right? All these things is like, how do you focus your stuff? So this is cool. So the best time you're saying like now, well, now you're heading over out kind of west a little bit. But when you look, if you just stick to your area there, yep. what does the season look like, and what is the best time? Yeah, so we're gonna open up. Rough grouse is gonna open up around mid September. Minnesota, the date varies a little bit. Some other states would be like. Uh, like September 15th would open every, but anyways, mid September for the, for the mm-hmm. sake of this conversation, rough girls opens up. And as I mentioned, that's early season. So there's definitely a, there's like a story arc to the rough girl season. And that early season is you've got young birds on the ground. You can get into, it can be kind of boom or bust type hunting. You might walk a lot and not find anything, but then you might get into a brood, a family group of grouse and you might flush, you know, six, seven, eight of them that could, those are kind of some chaotic things that can happen on opening day. But primarily the theme for opening day is it's still too warm. There's too many leaves on the trees. There's still bugs in the woods. It's hot. It's muggy. It's sweaty. It's not (laughs) enjoyable. We go because it's hunting season and it's this hunting season is it's this fleeting moment, right? So then you've got your kind of challenging early season conditions and everybody's waiting for the temperatures to drop a little bit and the leaves to start falling. And as soon as that happens, obviously you've got the beautiful scenery in the woods. You've got colors everywhere. That's, that's a really cool part of the grouse season, kind of late September, early October. But then when the leaves come down, that's when the, the primetime hunting begins. And that is primarily because two things. One, those family groups of grouse have, they're beginning to spread out. So they're kind of like, they're, they're in a solitary stage. They don't, they're not together all the time. So the grouse kind of disperse themselves in the woods. So you're in theory going to have more contacts. You're going to find more of them throughout the day, which adds to the hunt. But also when they actually do flush, you can see them because some of that, the weeds, the brush, the leaves is down you can actually see and shoot and maybe even hit something. And so that's kind of October. So if you ask somebody, what's the best month to hunt grouse, I would say nine out of 10 people are going to say October. Through my experience, I I would kind of push on that a little bit and say, if I had to choose for a four-week period, I would say the last two weeks in October and the first two weeks in November. And that really is the sweet spot for grouse is when the temperatures have dipped the leaves and cover are 70 80 90 percent down and you do not have snow and the the big factor that so we've always we've always got the threat of winter on the tail end of our season and our seasons stay open until roughly the end of the year Mm -hmm. but a lot of times they are kind of um ended on paper just by you know snow or blizzards if you get if you get too much snow then the grouse hunting really changes and you can, people still go out and do it and go on snowshoes and that kind of thing. But yeah. it gets harder on the dogs, the birds, they start to group back up based on contrast with what I was telling you, they got really dispersed in the forest as the season gets later, they start to group back up. So you get back into that boomer bust style hunting and they really focus in on their, on their winter habitat. But, um, yeah, so it's, it's that period of time when, it's the beauty of fall. The temperatures are perfect. There's no snow on the ground and you can hunt. And that's for this part of the world, that's kind of end of October, early November. And then you start throwing in deer seasons and all kinds of other, other activities going on in the woods. And that, that complicates things, but that's a kind of a synopsis of it. 
Right, right. That's great. And uh, and so we mentioned kind of, I guess, going back to the management areas, which sounds like a great place to start. What if you had, you know, if somebody out there had a little bit of money, is is there a big guiding? Is that a big opportunity where people can say, hey, I got some money. I just want to go find somebody to take me out and learn this thing. Is that doable? Yeah, definitely. There are there are lots of grouse. I, I, don't, I don't know about lots, like probably... Probably not relative to the fishing world. There's probably a lot less grouse guides, but right. they do exist and they are findable. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a buddy of mine who I work with. He's got a he has a grouse camp in Minnesota, Pine Ridge Grouse Camp. Oh, nice. um, they are they're in kind of north central Minnesota. You could call him up and book a stay and a guided grouse and woodcock hunt from basically the month of October is kind of their heyday, and in in, in Minnesota. Our firearms deer season usually starts the first Saturday in November. And so, and when that happens, the amount of deer hunters in the woods oh, yeah. at that time, <laughs> it's most grouse hunters are not going out. No. Is it crazy? Is the deer hunting season, is that, is that an area where there's just deer, like whitetail, right? Like everywhere? Um, not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. Um, deer hunting is a big tradition here in Minnesota. I've done a lot of it over the years. That's something that, almost regret regrettably. So I haven't done a whole lot of in the last few years. I do enjoy certain aspects and there's deer camp is a big tradition here. So there's, there's things like that going on, but yeah, there's, there are, I think we do maybe 500,000 deer hunters are out, you know, on opening day, Saturday, roughly give or take. And so there's, if you're, if you're out in the forested areas or really anywhere in Minnesota, you're going to see, you're going to see people deer hunting. So it's just a, people are are very reluctant to and rightfully so to take their dogs out running around and right to some extent it's like you know let the deer hunters have the woods for for a little bit of time right like we don't need to be out there uh, messing around so what i start doing at that time is i will wisconsin's deer season is a little bit different so i can hop over there and and hunt in wisconsin and you can some people take in michigan their grouse season or their deer season starts november 15th you cannot grouse hunt for the last the second 15 days in november it's closed down so i know a lot of michigan friends that window will kind of they'll just go take a trip to south dakota or go go somewhere else and do something else if they're not deer hunting yeah kind of thing okay so let's talk about a little bit about the the hunt. So and, and maybe for you, it sounds like you have a dog out there. Maybe we just talk about that if you you know you, you got a hunt coming up, um, and you have one. Did you say this the next one coming up is in Montana? I'll be in North Dakota this year. Yep. Yeah, North Dakota. Very and, similar. And that, but yeah. Similar. And is that going to be for grouse? That will be for primarily sharp-tailed grouse. Um, so they're the you know the cousin of the rough grouse, but they they live on the prairies. They're a they're a kind of a mixed habitat species. We actually have some in Minnesota and Wisconsin too. The populations are a lot less than they were historically due to some habitat things going on. But they're a bird that thrives in in uh, open spaces with some woody vegetation and shrubby stuff. But anyways, North Dakota, Montana, lots of other states are are uh, uh, targets for sharp-tailed grouse. So I'll be going out there and chasing those. And then the other bonus bird that we could get into would be Hungarian partridge. Oh, so, nice non-native species uh, i yeah. forget where they were introduced it was i think they were introduced a few times maybe it might have been up in like alberta or saskatchewan where they actually were introduced and it stuck and then they kind of moved down and um you'll find them kind of all over the west and again we used to have more of those here too i've i've never 
seen them in any areas of Minnesota or Wisconsin, but they're rumored to still be around. But anyways, those are the two birds you're primarily hunting when you go out west in September. There's pheasant out there, but those seasons don't open until October. And I will be, come October, I'll be back here hunting in in the woods. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And have you done this? Is this North Dakota going to be something that's going to be pretty, you know what to expect? Yes, I, this will be, I think this will be my fifth year going out there. My first trip was in 2018 and mm-hmm. I've now made it an annual trip again, kind of going back to some of those things I talked about where it's just, it's a really awesome way to kick off the season because it's kind of the, like I was saying the prime time rough grouse hunting here is kind of late October, early November. Well, September is kind of prime time hunting for sharp tailed grouse and pointing dogs, because they are in, they're in family groups similar to what I was talking about with, or they can be, it's not not a rule, but they can be, and so the, so the dogs can find them, and the they tend to, um, you'll hear people say they'll they'll cooperate for the bird dogs. You know, the dog will go on point. Say my dog goes on point two hundred and fifty yards away. Well, I got to hmm. cover two hundred fifty yards of ground before I can get in there and even get a chance, right? So in September, your odds of that sharp tail, those sharp tail grouse kind of they're not necessarily going to sit completely still they might they might kind of wander ahead through the grass and the dog will stand there on point and i'll walk in there and my odds of walking up there and actually flushing the birds within range and getting a shot are much greater in september than they are in october and november and now i've never i've never hunted them that late apart from a a random day or two here there but Generally speaking, the sharp tails tend to, as the food sources change on the landscape, they tend to really group up and get in big groups and they become a lot less cooperative for dogs. So in that same scenario, your dog is out 250 yards, goes on point. I walk a hundred yards and then at a hundred yards, the group of 20, 30 sharp tails says, screw this, we're out of here. And they take off, you know, and Mm. that can turn into a, a really frustrating day really, really fast. You got your dogs are doing great. The birds are not cooperating. Right. Those are some of the dynamics that that come into play with bird dogs and everything. But yeah. So yes, if if it would be a new experience, I've I've done this. This will be my fifth trip out there. Generally, know what to expect. Um, Really, really excited about some high quality hunting that we should have. And um, so far, I'm hearing because people are hunting in Montana already, and it's a big thing out out west. People are paying attention to rain, how much grass, how much cover mm. there was. Like if you remember last year, I'm sure the yeah. drought conversation was kind yep. of all over. Um, so there was lots of a lot more questions and concerns about birds. And I still went out. We did we did fine last year, but it sounds like this year birds and cover are a whole lot better. So we'll find out in a few days. Yeah, sounds amazing. So that sounds like a great trip. So you're going to be. So when you get out there, and, and let's just take it like into that day. Yeah. And it sounds like you're going to be uh, in a f- couple days. You're going to be hunting. What is that first day? What does that look like when you get out? Are you you know getting out early? What what does the hunting day look like? Yeah. So September hunting on the prairie. Generally, the the story of the day is you're going to want to get out there. It, it's temperature dependent. It can be can be quite warm out there. You, know, you can get in the 70s. You could have 80s. Right now, they're dealing with, I mean, in Montana, it was like 100 degrees Jeez. two days ago. And so that very quickly turns into uh, not fun to a serious concern because you can have these dogs will overheat and people, oh, right. people can lose dogs in the field by, you know, they can be running 
running along just fine and the next minute they're on the ground because they oh geez. they've got too much prey drive to you know they're not going to put the brakes on themselves right so so that's always a concern early season so generally you're trying to get out in the morning and hunt before it gets too warm and you're trying to take advantage of those cool hours in the morning and a lot of times say the high is going to be 70 degrees you know you're going to have you're probably in the in the low if ideally dips down into the 40s that night you're going to have a good hunt that morning and again for me it's kind of like it's my first hunt of the year so i i don't necessarily need to be grinding pushing all day long but if i can get out and get a good morning hunt in and we get into some birds then if it warms up and we're kind of kicking back taking it easy the rest of the day that's okay right but so that's kind of that's kind of the approach but when we get out there we will be actually we've got a travel day we've done it differently sometimes we cruise out there and try to hunt in the evening when it's cooling down this year we're we're doing a little differently where we're just gonna take a travel day out we're kind of hunting a little bit newer area this this year so we're branching out and trying to explore diversify you want to you want to have you know more areas just no different than fishing you you know you got to have more areas in your back pocket so that if an area is not doing well the birds are down it's getting more pressure you want to be able to you know go to plan b so to speak so we're we're shifting our focus a little bit we'll be hunting new areas so we're going to try to get in there and do some driving around the the day before so we'll do a little scouting so you're driving around and this is a learned thing but it's it's not the most difficult thing in the world once you figure out the kind of grass that that sharp tails like to be in you can reasonably drive around and identify pieces and so you're you're kind of driving around you're filtering okay what can i hunt what can i not hunt so you've got posted land that you can't hunt and then you've got some public land north dakota doesn't have a lot of public land but the one thing that you can still do which is kind of unusual you can hunt private property that is not posted so oh wow so there's there's still land out in north dakota that you know farmers farm it they use it it's private land but they don't mind hunters out there and that's, um, that's cool. really it's yeah it's really a privilege uh that is as i mentioned unusual most states have kind of done away with that and i mean the writing is kind of on the wall that 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 may not always be the case in north dakota um i hope it doesn't happen but um anyways that's a story for a different day but anyways you're looking for land that you've got access to and you can always go you know if you see a farmer or you can go knock on a door you know that's that's a that's an old thing you can you can always do that um and lots of people find great places to hunt that way but anyways you're looking for a specific kind of grass that is likely to hold sharp tails and then fast forward to that next morning basically you're getting out there and cutting the dogs loose and that's like with pointing dogs, they're going to cover lots of ground that I won't. And that's one of the, one of the benefits of, of this pointing of the pointing dogs that I run is they're going to run 250, you know, 150, 250 yards. And there are dogs that will, that are bred for the prairie and primarily hunt out there that are, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred. 800. I mean, you, you know, it's, there's, ex- there's extremes. So, wow. so my, my dogs aren't, aren't the biggest running dogs and that's primarily cause they're mainly grouse dogs, but they will go out there and cover ground and I'm going to be walking and they're kind of keying off me handling. I'm going to, as best I can walk them into areas that I think there are going to be birds, but more likely the dogs are, they learn to check objectives and check specific areas. And it's, it's little subtle things in the, in the 
cover like you've got a big landscape of grass you're going to have little berry patches or shrub pieces and over time as the dogs hunt more throughout their lives and contact birds they they learn to check those kinds of Hmm. objectives so they're they're running around they're working the wind and scenting birds and hopefully i'm watching my dog racing across a a little knob or something and they will stop and they Hmm. they get bird scent they stop and point and then wow you can bet your, you know what, that I'm heading that direction in a hurry. <laughs> Today's episode is sponsored by Range Meal Bars, made in Vancouver, Washington, by a small team of passionate outdoor enthusiasts. The Range team only uses the highest quality gluten-free ingredients that they feel good about fueling their adventures with, and they don't use brown rice syrup as a primary sweetener. You know that I love a good bar. I've always got a bar in my pack, in my pocket, uh, in my vest. Uh, it's always right there because I always love. Sometimes I push it and sometimes I need a bar to keep me going. So getting a bar that has got the flavor like range also packs a punch with 700 calories in each bar. It's like having a basically like having a meal in your pocket. Um, it's just the way to go. It's always good to have it. It's a safety thing. If, if you don't eat a lot, it's always good to have something like this on hand just in case. Um, I've got one in my first aid kit as well. Uh, so this is what I recommend. This is what I love. I've eaten them all. I've eaten Cliff Bars, Power Bars, Pro Bars, um, Luna Bars. But there's nothing that packs a punch like range. So you got to check them out. Right now you can get over to wetflyswing.com range. That's Range Meal Bars, R-A-N-G-E. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to check out Range. Okay, back to the show. So you're basically just, yeah, following your dogs around. They're leading the way. And then yeah. and then when they're pointing, I mean, they're essentially pointing at the birds. What's that look like as you, as you approach from, uh, you know, 100 yards out and you're getting ready to uh, fire? Take us there. Yeah, well, I, I would say that 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 picture you just painted is what basically motivates anyone like myself, any passionate upland bird hunter with a dog to get up in the morning and go do it is to be a hundred yards out and see their dog standing with a, with a pointing dog. There's, there's flushing dogs, which I don't run. So I don't, I don't talk about them as much, but a lot of the same stuff applies to people hunting flushing dogs and pointing dogs. But anyways, you got a dog on point and you're walking in. I mean, that's what you, that's what you live for. That's, that's what you get up in the morning for to see your dog on point. It's everything is, there's a, a tension in the air because you're, you're wanting to walk in and flush the birds. And it's just, it, there's anticipation. <laughs> everything is building. That's the pinnacle. And you mm-hmm. walk up there and there's, there's nuances to, you know, if your dog is on point, you're not going to walk right to the dog. You're assuming the birds are out ahead of the dog. And especially say if we're out West on the prairie, I'm going to assume the birds could be further than they normally would because the dog's getting a good steady breeze. So Mm. the birds could be 20, 30, 40 yards ahead of the dog. So you're kind of taking this arc and I'm usually trying to come in at an angle and there might be an objective too on the ground. This is, this is kind of getting into the weeds, but there might be something that I'm looking at where I think the birds are going to be. So anyways, you're walking in and you're ready at that point. So you've, you know, your guns kind of, kind of floating up and you're ready for action. And if all goes according to plan, you're going to get somewhere in front of your dog's nose, the dog's still standing there. And all of a sudden sharp tails are going to start taking off out of the grass. Might be one, might be 10. You never know. That's, that's kind of the exciting part. Sharp tails. And, 
a lot of times they'll one will flush. And if this is a good tip for anybody going on the first sharp tail hunt, if you're say your dog is on point, you're walking in and a bird flushes, your immediate reaction will probably be like, Oh shoot. You know, yep. you, you let your guard down, never do that. Keep walking. There's probably more. And that's, oh. that's the habits of, of early season sharp tails. They're usually in a group and they will not all flush at the same time. Unlike some other birds like covey birds, say Bob white quail or huns. I think generally speaking, I haven't hunted those birds as much, but generally they're all taken off at the same time, no matter what, but sharp tails will kind of popcorn flush. People like to say, so yeah. if one goes, just keep walking towards that area. You might, you'll probably get a chance for another one. So, wow, that's great. So, yeah. so you go out and they're, and they're popping out and then when they, you know, you, as you kind of wait and eventually they all are, they start popping out. When do you, what's that look like on the shot? How, how are you, are these birds flying out away down? What are they doing? Yeah. Yeah. They're, I would say sharp tails because they don't, they're not flying through trees. They're not necessarily likely to fly, you know, they're not going to fly straight up in the air. So they're generally, they're generally getting up, you know, they'll come out of, you'll be looking at a sea of grass. And a lot of times the grass isn't that tall because they're not in really tall grass. They're in like picture ankle to mid calf height grass. And so you're kind of, you'll be looking at the ground and be like, where's the bird? You know, I can't, (laughs) I like, uh, how could a bird even be here? But they'll, they'll come out of places, you know, you'll never see them there. They're, they're so tucked down to the ground. Anyways, they'll, they'll come out and they generally are, they're probably flying away from you, but they, they'll do things like they'll grab the wind out there. Cause wind is, is unlike hunting in the woods, you've generally got some kind of a wind out in the prairie. So they might pop up and, and grab the wind and then, and get whipped off around behind you or something, but they've got a place in mind where they're going to go. Uh, they're escaping predators 24, seven, 365 days a year. So you coming up with your, with your dog and your gun, you know, you're no, yeah. no better than a, than a Fox or a avian predators really are, hmm. are the main thing they're getting away from. So yeah, they're going to, they're going to flush out. And again, going back to what I talked about, September kind of being prime time, you're probably going to get pretty close before the birds flush. And this is what is leading into this, the great hunting opportunity that September sharp tails can be. I'm probably going to walk in and I might flush a bird, you know, it might be 10 yards, 10 yards away when it actually gets up off the ground and a bird that gets up at 10 yards that I have really no obstruction. That's a relatively easy shot in, mm-hmm. in now don't mistake this for me saying like we never miss or anything like that, but it's <laughs> yeah. just, it's, you're not shooting through trees like you are in the woods. It's, you've got time. You're, you're close to the bird. It's in range. So at that point the bird gets up and there's lots of things going on where I've got to know where my dog is. I've got to know where right. my partners is, you know, yep. shooting at birds on the wing happens fast. And so there's lots of safety concerns that you inherently you kind of get a sixth sense about but it's never something to be taken for granted obviously no so you're kind of you're making all these really quick computations of yep okay birds going in a safe direction and you're not consciously thinking about this but just to say it out loud here on the podcast you're you're deciding yep safe shot in range dogs behind me boom i've got the shot Mm -hmm. and, and you shoot and if if the bird comes down the the cycle is complete and you're a yep. you're happy guy at that <laughs> yeah that is that would be a happy moment and and so what is the i was thinking about this uh, earlier the so wing shooting versus upland what what is what's the difference there what, what is wing shooting 
I would say that wing shooting is a term that could include waterfowl hunting. Oh, okay. So wing, wing shooting is a, and this isn't, yeah, this, this isn't like set in stone or anything, yeah. but my perspective and really answering your question, I think wing shooting is a term that I use it a lot to talk about upland hunting. You know, it can, you mean upland hunting, but it can sometimes be used as a broader term to include waterfowl hunting or shooting, gotcha. or do, you know, dove hunting, which people are out doing that mm. on September 1st. Whereas upland hunting generally refers to these upland game birds, which are your grouse, yeah. quail species, um, and those are what in pheasants and Hungarian partridge, that, that kind of thing that, so up upland is the most specific of the terms. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's the most specific. Nice. And good. So yeah. And today we're not going to dig into obviously the, the duck hunting and, and even a lot of these species. I, I would, one question I do have is, so we're talking about some specifics on grouse. Does a lot of this stuff kind of apply to do like the other species, quail, chucker, things like that? Would it be similar to this? I, obviously depending on your habitat. Yeah, Chucker's a good mention. Yes, and the biggest thing that's going to change is is really the habitat. You know, the region, the locale, the habitat, the cover, where you find them. But the tactics, the techniques, the bird dog stuff, the shotgunning, the wing shooting, all of that stuff, you know, can be generally applied to these other species. But you've got a lot of variation as far as where these birds live, how to find them, how to hunt them. And then there's, you know, again, you can, I can get into the nuance of hunting rough grouse and approaching points and all that kind of stuff all day long. But you start asking me about bobwhite quail and I'm going to be talking in right. very general terms. Cause I just, until you spent, you know, have boots on the ground and, and have a lot of experience with a bird, there's, there's a lot to learn about each of these individual species, no different than, than a fish, right? Yeah, exactly. Same thing. Well, and you talked about shooting and then shooting is another challenge, right? For, yep. for some people, especially if you're new, you got a shotgun and yeah, like you said, you don't want to blast your, you know, blast your partner, or your dog. That's a big, yep. obviously the first thing, but then just shooting, right? The bird. So are you, you know, how do you shoot? Right. I mean, I have shooting is, um, once you get it, I guess like anything with practice, you kind of get a feel for it, but well, let's start with the gun real quick. So what is gun? They got all sorts of over and under side by size, different guns. Is there, what would you recommend again for somebody maybe who's kind of getting into it? Is there a good type of gun or what would you recommend there? Yeah. So, so that is a, that is definitely a rabbit hole of a, of a <laughs> conversation. Yeah. And just, uh, just to be clear, I, I work for Upland gun company and we sell, oh, wow. uh, we sell a, a very specific kind of gun. And I'm just saying that to say like, uh, of course sure. I love our guns, but our guns are, again, I was, I was thinking about this when I was going to talk to you yesterday, like in the spectrum of, you know, fishing rods, you know, you've got your, right. you've got your, your Zebco that you go and grab. Well, that's, with, that's the question here is that like with the rods, it's so funny because 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they used to say with the fly rod that, you know, there were differences, but now you almost can't buy a bad fly rod because yeah. of the technology. Is it kind of similar with guns or is that not the same? I would say kind of, but it's a, probably a little bit more of a slippery slope than that. Just because if you think about it, you know, a shotgun, you're, you're, basically uh you're pointing a controlled explosion and there's a lot going on in a shotgun and they they take a lot of strain and a lot of wear so there are some there are some shotguns um made that are it's not just necessarily about the that you're not gonna have as good of a feel as you would have like on say a fly rod but um you can have shotguns that you know once they start to break you know there's more mm -hmm. going on internally 
there. Yep. So right, there's probably weight too, right? I mean, because it depends on your size. If you're a kid or oh, yeah. whatever, yep. right? You need a li- lighter gun, probably, right? Yeah, but so like to kind of to get back to like starting point, like if somebody says, you know, hey Nick, I'm just getting into upland hunting. I want to buy a shotgun. I want to buy one from you. I'm probably mm-hmm. gonna say. No, our guns are for your next gun, maybe, or your oh, third gotcha. or, or your fourth gun. You know, it's kind of, again, the guy that's been fishing for a long time, yeah. eventually you get a custom-made bamboo right. rod or something, right? So that, that's yep. that's what we do. But I was just trying gotcha. to separate that. So starting Perfect. out, there are, there are lots of options for folks that probably the the classic gun that a lot of people start hunting with, I started hunting with this, is a, a Remington 870 Express. It's a pump action shotgun. Uh, kind of a kind of a go anywhere, do everything. You know, they've got them in youth models. They've got, you know, they're smaller. So whether you're male, female, you can find one that's size for you. They are reliable. They're cost effective. And yep. like I said, they can, they can do anything. They're going to be heavier and they're not going to be as uh, well balanced or um, s- certainly functional, but a little bit different than again once you start getting into that that higher end stuff. But the point of that is like again coming back to this: don't let you know, don't let that stop. You don't need a fancy shotgun. You don't need a, a fancy this or that. You know, somebody like me that's been doing it for a long time. I've I've thought of every reason why I need expensive and fancy gear. So so right. You know, I've gone down that road just as a, as a, to torture myself, but it's, yeah. it's all in good fun. But that's the beauty of upland hunting is you don't need a whole lot, you know, go grab a Remington 870 express and, yep. and a pair of boots and hit the public lands. Right. That's but perfect. I would say that if you told me, Hey, I want to want to get into upland bird hunting and I'm committed to it, or you're maybe you've done it for a couple, you've been out a few times and you're looking to get that next really upland specific gun. Mm-hmm. That's when I, I mean, I, I like a double gun for many reasons. And when I say double gun, I should clarify, I mean, yeah. an over under, like you said, or a side by side. I, okay. I tend to shoot side by sides. I would say the, the debate between over unders and side by sides is probably a little too deep for this conversation, but okay. <laughs> those are both commonly referred to as a double gun or a break action gun and so that's a gun that is it's got a you got a top lever and you're it breaks open in the middle where you load the you load the gun from the breech it does not have a pump action or a semi-automatic action the reason people like those guns in the uplands is generally two shots is plenty before you need to before you need to reload there there are examples where it's not but two shots is is plenty for for most opportunities and when you with a double gun you can break it open it's it's a nearly completely safe gun it can't fire mm. when it's when it's broke open and so that's right. appreciated especially if you got new hunters out there they can have the gun broke open you can sort of walk with the field with it broke oh, open right. that's and, cool and you should never assume a gun is 100 percent safe unless it's completely empty not not loaded but again, that's, that's kind of like just gun safety stuff, but double guns tend to set up really well for upland hunting. They tend to be lighter weight. They've got good balance. They're made for, they're made for carrying a long ways and shooting a little. That's kind of the, those are kind of the best ways to describe it. Like generally talking upland hunting, you're walking a lot, you're covering Mm -hmm. lots of ground, you're getting into some birds, but you're not shooting a box of shells every day. 
Now, yeah. again, there are examples of, of that where you might, but it's very common to go out and walk a few miles through the woods and, you know, maybe you shoot one or two times. And so you're, you're, again, you're wanting a gun that, that performs in those moments, but for most of the day, it's easy to carry, easy to maneuver through the cover with, and it's not weighing you down as you're, yeah. as you're covering ground. Right. Perfect. And, and on then just getting to keeping it general, I like 12 gauge, 20 gauge. I mean, it, is there any time you would not use a 12 gauge or is that pretty much the standard? Um, I would say that like, if you do a survey of all upland bird hunters, 12 gauge is going to be the most common because it, it just is. But I, I would say that 20 gauge is probably the more common gun for avid, avid upland bird or people that okay. are just doing it more than just very casual upland bird hunting. Um, the, the modern 20 gauge can, can pretty much w- with some advances in ammunition and technology. Um, you know, I, again, I've gone down the deep end and all this stuff, but the, the, uh, 20 gauge is probably what you're going to see most guys hunting with bird dogs using. I would say it's probably a 20 gauge. Um, and really there's, there's lots of much as I assume the same happens in the world of fishing, there are lots of trends and stuff that yeah, sort of yeah, come and go. And I would say that sub gauges, and when I say sub gauges, I mean anything less than a 12. So 16, 20, 28, those are, oh, right. those, those are the main ones. There, there's a 410 that some folks will use, but sub gauges are really, really popular. So there's lots of people shooting 20 and 28 gauges right now, oh, which, wow. which is primarily what I, what I shoot. Now I'm, I'm going a little bit differently. I've, I'll be shooting a 12 gauge, which I haven't shot a whole lot of uplanting. It's generally it's it's more than you need, but you can do lots with ammunition to sort of scale up or down um, what you're shooting. So that's another common mis- misconception is many people will assume well a 12 gauge is is more powerful. Not necessarily. Generally speaking, it can it can shoot more payload and 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 shoot more of it than a smaller gauge, but you can also scale down a 12 gauge. I could shoot a quote, 28 gauge round out of a 12 gauge. Oh, and there right. are, there are even some reasons why you might consider doing that again, really, really in-depth conversation there, but, um, it's yeah, you pick one of the common gauges. And I would say for someone starting out, like a 20 gauge is hard to go wrong with because that ammo in a normal ammo environment, we've had some strange things going on the last couple of years, but normally yeah. speaking, you're going to be able to find 12 and 20 gauge ammo pretty regularly. Right. And it's going to be, and it's going to be the cheapest and the most cost effective. So again, somebody says, what, what gauge should I get for my first gun? Um, it, there might be some species, like if you said, a, primarily I'm going to be a pheasant hunter, you know, maybe you get a 12 gauge, but for the most part, I would think a lot of people start with a, with a good 20 gauge. That's it. 20 and that's where it comes back to with the gun is that if you want the all-around gun that can shoot you know ducks geese whatever it is then yeah the 12 gauge because then you can go bigger but the 20 gauge yeah for upland would be a good gun and and just to wrap this up you know again so if i came to you and with your gun company that you work for if i was like okay i've got the 870 but i really want to get something really nice just you know or maybe it's a present for somebody right something like that what would be the upland gun say for what we've been talking about today what would be one is there a model you'd recommend to be real cool or is there just a bunch 
Well, it's it's primarily like it kind of what we do is fairly unique, and that's allowing people to. All of our guns are made to order, which is pretty. Oh, wow. un, it's not unusual in the in the rod, the fishing rod world. No. I don't think, but in the shotgun world, it's it's something that has it was more common, and it's in today's day and age, it's kind of become unattainable. The price is so like a a made to order gun from England, which is the extreme. You know, that's like a hundred thousand dollars or more. So Jeez. that that's <laughs> obviously out of reach for for many many people. What we do is we're doing custom guns from Italy, made to order, and they are more. They start at two thousand and go uh-huh. up from there. Now that yeah. that sort of price point, I mean, there's a lot of people that would never spend more than two thousand dollars on a gun. Yeah. But obviously, a lot more people can afford a two to five thousand dollar shotgun yeah. than say a hundred thousand dollar shotgun. So, but our customers are—they're choosing. You're making one big decision, which is side by side or over under. And mm. once you get into there's some there's differences between those two. But once you get into one of those sort of models platforms, then you're just sort of the the things that people are debating over are how long do I want the barrels to be. What grip do I want? What forend do I want? And then you get into fancy engraving or not fancy engravings or right. finishings. And then a wood, the piece of wood on a double mm-hmm. gun is, is always, it's the most unique. It's, you know, there's only one, one piece of wood that goes on, on your gun. You're the only one that has that, even though everybody's got, might have the same barrels in action. There's one piece of wood. And so people get into that myself included the, the figure or the character of the piece of wood. So, um, cool. you're, yeah, you're you're coming to us and you're building a side by side or an over under and you're you're picking out exactly the configuration you want and you're choosing the piece of wood and what you know guys are we've got Italy's got excellent engravers and so guys will send in a, a picture of their bird dog and get their dog engraved oh, wow, on the bottom of their cool. gun and yeah th- <laughs> those are things that are again fairly unique to what we do at this point but um, people really really enjoy it it's it's fun to it's fun to help people build you know, those guns that they're super proud of. So, yeah, yeah, I love that. And it's the same with the fly rod, you know, you're out there fishing yeah. and you could start out with a very inexpensive rod, no problem. But as you get into it, you know, sometimes you find you're like, oh man, I'm sitting out there fishing with this rod. It's cool to have a custom rod, you know, built by with the story behind it too. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's, you know, as you, as you know, like you can, you get lost in this conversation of like, you know, is it more functional? Well, probably not, but yeah this is a hobby and this is a pastime mm-hmm. for a lot of us. And we, we do get excited about it. And it, a lot of times it comes down to aesthetics and, you know, you just want to, you want to have something like that, that again, you're proud of, you enjoy going out into, you know, fishing the stream or, or hunting my grouse cover and looking down at that beautiful gun. I just, that's something that I've come to enjoy. Yeah. What is the, um, taking it back to the birds. So you, the grouse are, you know, like you're saying, they're, they're popping out like popcorn. What's the, do you have like a hunt, a shooting tip, you know, like for somebody, again, maybe that's done a little bit of shooting, but, you know, is there anything you would, you would just throw out there like, okay, this might help you the next time you're shooting at some birds? Um, I would say that it's taking your time and which is a really hard thing to do. There's a, there's a saying that I'm blanking on. You might be able to help me with. It's like slow is smooth and smooth is fast. You're all oh, right. You think yep. you want to like, because when these birds flush, they flush with, with authority. They've, they're, they're usually 
fairly like they're like plump birds they don't have huge wings they're not made for flying long distances but the way that their wings have adapted is they're now sharp tails can fly plenty far so don't mistake that but when they're flushing they're flapping their wings and it's chaotic and it's crazy and so there's there's at least for me like there's this this feeling like oh i gotta shoot because they're they're like encouraging you to do things too fast so a lot of times people will throw the gun up to their face generally point in the direction of the bird and bang bang shoot two shells and you were totally not on target you rushed it you you made a bad gun mount and the bird is now flying away still plenty within range and you're standing there with an empty gun so maybe the guy with the semi-auto he's got the third shot he (laughs) right he 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 fires two throwaway shots and then he finally focuses and and gets it with his third but the tip would be when that bird gets up do your darndest to to try to maintain composure you've got more time than you think again these these we're shooting shotgun shells they can reach out and touch a bird that if it gets up and in range you're better off Focusing on a consistent gun mount is something that will help a lot of people. And that's one thing that it does come with time. And a lot of people just sort of pick up a gun and start shooting. Like you're saying, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's unusual to have like real coaching in wing shooting or instruction. Um, and a lot of that can be really good for you, but it's, it's just not the way that a lot of us get started hunting. So focusing on, on your gun mount and maintaining your composure when those birds get up can really help you out. Yeah. For that. You know, it's a great tip. It is. You, you're so excited. So, and how far out? So they, they flush and they're flying and you're kind of maybe waiting to get things ready. How far out can you shoot? Or, I guess it depends on the shell, the gun. Yeah. Like yeah. The a lot of, there's a lot of, it depends on that, but I would say generally speaking, most people are dropping upland birds in 30 yards or less. Um, you can definitely shoot farther than that. Um, I think, I think probably pheasants are getting shot at 40 yards especially as you get into later season just as a general rule of thumb later season birds are spookier they've been hunted they're more wary they're getting up farther you're shooting longer distances but i would say beyond 40 yards you're getting into um the birds are being killed that far but that's a that's a shot that a a lot of people aren't taking and b you got to have the right setup to be consistently dropping birds at 40 yards and it, it quickly turns into a etiquette conversation right like are you are you equipped enough and a skilled enough shooter to be taking cracks at birds out there or should you let that bird fly and try to fly yeah. in or go find another one right 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 exactly yeah are there times when you're shooting you, you're flushing birds and i mean i guess you're always probably getting the chance at a shot but do sometimes you you, know, you flush them and you don't take a shot does that happen very often yeah yeah definitely uh, a lot of times will it will happen like where i had in the forest a lot like it's hard to get a shot there just because you can't, you know, these birds are flying through trees and it, shooting is just a lot more challenging in oh, the forest. Yeah. But the main thing that would prevent me from taking a shot is a low flush. If they get up and if every bird got up and flew about two or three feet off the ground, not many of them would get killed because a, that's where our dogs are. So you mm. have to be really careful for that, but it's also, it's just harder to shoot birds lower to the ground. If they get up and put, some blue sky underneath their belly and and give you a nice silhouette against the sky that's a that's a bird that's probably in trouble um mm-hmm. so the generally the higher the the higher they flush the better of an opportunity is because it's a it's it's going to be recognized as a safe shot a lot faster uh but b it's also it's easier to shoot a rising bird like that but yeah a lot of times in the grouse woods they'll 
if they they flush low over your dog i mean you know nobody's nobody's taking a shot anywhere near their dog um it's you know you don't want to risk that and do- i mean dogs do dogs get shot it accidents happen and stuff and it's just like that's like the it's fun to talk about all this stuff but again you're talking about shooting guns firearm safety yeah a lot of times i breeze over that and and it, that's just because we're talking about things that are more fun to talk about but let me just put an emphasis. I mean, when it comes to gun safety and firearm safety, like that is the number one priority when, when it comes to hunting. Yeah. I know you hear all those crazy stories. I remember back in high school, whatever college, you hear the crazy stories about somebody's friend, yep. you know, sh- shooting their cowboy hat off their head or something like that. Right. And you just right. like, wow. And, and I, you know, and having a couple of kids now, I'm, I'm really thinking about this, you know, like, okay, if I'm going to get them into hunting, you know, I want to make sure they're safe. And I remember when I learned, I mean, I was hunting well before I could have a license. You know, my dad, you know, I had the gun and I was, yeah. you know, it wasn't, it wasn't legal back in the day, but you know, it's kind of like driving a car too. I mean, I started driving a car, I, you know what I mean? Like before I had a license. So yep. I think that helped a lot, but what would be now the days for, you know, say a kid, you know, you're starting to get them or anybody really, a kid or adult, what, what's the safety? Is there, you know, the hunter safety courses, is that the, is that where you get started? Yeah. Hunter safety. You're going to go through that. And, you know, I took a class when I was, when I was a kid and I, they think they still do that. And I, I think that's a good experience for our kids. I know they have, they have made it like a lot of things they've made it where you can go and take an online course. And I think that's, that's really geared more towards adults. Um, so you don't have to go to a class with a, with a bunch of 10 year olds and, you know, to help, help adults (laughs) get into, get into this later in life. But anyways, yeah, I would do that. And then, that's a good point. Something to mention here is like talking first hunt or getting a kid into it. There are some things you can do before going out on your first wild bird hunt that you might do to help you out. And a, when it comes to shotgun shooting safety, go out and shoot some, some clays. So sporting clays, if you haven't heard of that, think of the shotgun version of golf you know you you go to a court it's a course they have different stations set up each one's a little bit differently you go there and you're shooting clay targets that is a it's a safe environment as long as you're obviously following some rules here but it's it's a controlled scenario controlled environment a great place to go build confidence with your gun and prove to yourself that you can because wing shooting is like you kind of mentioned earlier it's like a shotgunning is it's an athletic movement it's it's mm-hmm. it's their confidence is your foundation for that you've got to you've got to be consistent and confident in your shooting so doing that and learning that on the clays course is a great place to go so that when you do get out into that wild bird hunting experience where there are variables that are not in control like on that clays course you can you can at least kind of fall back on your the consistency and the confidence you built up shooting clays. And then there's kind of an in-between step that some folks will use a hunting preserve where you're going and they're, they've got pen raised birds that they're putting out and you're in a field again, more variables under control than wild bird hunting. That's not like, that's not the, the primary thing that like a lot of folks that would listen to my podcast are interested in, but a lot of, a lot of people will use those hunting preserves, number one, because unfortunately we don't have wild bird populations everywhere. So for some mm-hmm. people, it's kind of, it's like the only thing they can do close to home. But number two, if you've got a young hunter or a new hunter, again, it can be a more controlled environment. Mm. And it's, there are, mm-hmm. there are some reasons why people would do that step before, say, going wild bird hunting. 
Love that. Those are killer tips. I like going to the trout pond, you know? Yeah, exactly. The trout pond. Yeah. Same thing. I think the, and I haven't been to either. I haven't, well, in the clay targets course is interesting. Cause I haven't really been to, I have like right here, sitting next to me, one of those old, uh, like wooden handle. My dad yeah, gave it to me. Yeah. yeah. The thrower. Right. And it, <laughs> and it actually works great. Yeah. You know, you, you toss it out there and you, you huck it and, and you, you know, you do it, but you're, you're talking about actually going to a course where they're doing it for you and you're just shooting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's again, it, whatever's easier for you. If you got a thrower and you got a friend and you want to go buy a box of clay, sometimes that can be less intimidating. You know, the, mm-hmm. if you're, if you're, you go up to go to a course, sometimes they can be, you know, kind of formal and there's oh, a, right. there's a, if it's real busy or whatever, a lot of yeah. the courses now are like sporting clays is a game for sure. And it is, it has evolved beyond like when it started, it was kind of for practice for hunting. But like a lot of things, it's sort of evolved now and there's competition and there's, you mm. know, there's money and that kind of stuff. So oh, wow. if you go to a sporting clays course, you're very likely going to see some targets that are going to be not like birds. And they're also, especially if you're a new shooter, they're going to be beyond your capabilities of hit. I mean, I, there's a lot, plenty of targets that are beyond my capabilities as a wing shooter. But the cool thing about a lot of sporting clays now, what they have is, there's, uh, it's kind of a self-service. So a lot of the stations will have this little kiosk where you put in a, you load up, uh, a card, like a credit card with your targets and you put that into the kiosk and then you're there with a buddy and you've got the controller and you're throwing the clays. So you don't have to play the game. You can just shoot the targets that you want to shoot and do whatever you want. You're not keeping score or anything like that. So if you can find a club that has that self-service, and you can go there when it's not crazy busy and do your thing. That's a great form of practice. You don't have to do anything else. But like you said, you can also grab a box of clays and a thrower and go out to a gravel pit or somewhere where they allow you to shoot clays and do that on your own too. So Today's episode is sponsored by Angler's Coffee. Joe's been doing this for over 40 years now. The Angler's Coffee team roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. Responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices, you can rest easy knowing you're doing your part. Joe also roasts and ships within 48 hours to assure freshness. Can't wait to get on the river and crack out that next cup of coffee. Uh, that's going to be coming soon. And there's only one thing that I love about equally as coffee. You know what that is. Um, but if I had to pick one, I think I'd have to stick with Angler's Coffee. And, uh, and that's what I'd go with. They've also got a dry dropper on the go tea bag option that makes it real easy. All you need is a little hot water. You can add it and mix it in and you're good to go. It's time to step up to great coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes that we love. You can check out Anglers right now. Wetflyswing.com slash anglers is the best place to go. That's Anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S, to support this podcast and a sustainable, amazing coffee company. Okay, back to the show. So I want to talk a little bit as we, you know, start to think about wrapping this up, the, yeah. um, you know, hunting without a dog. We mentioned that at the start, but I, I did want to dig into the podcast because we mentioned that you got the Birdshot podcast yeah. and I love digging into a little on the podcasting stuff. So talk about that first on the podcast where, you know, when you look at, I know you have a bunch of different diverse episodes. How do yep. you go about, um, well, let's, let's start with the podcast first. How, how did you, because it is a lot of work. How did you get into like, okay, I'm going to start a podcast. Where'd that come from? <laughs> Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> I started it in 2017 and what month? September. 
Oh, wow. That's so amazing because we started ours in December of 2017. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Perfect. similar timeline there, which I mean, man, it's like podcasts were definitely going at that time, but obviously yeah. now in the last, you know, five years since then, it's, it's even crazier. But I know I was a, I was a, a podcast listener for a long time going back to probably when I, after I graduated college and got a working in finance and had desk jobs and needed, uh, you know, whether I needed it or not, I thought I needed, you know, something to fill my head while I was working. <laughs> so so yeah. I'm listening to the podcast. And I mean, the cool thing for me, and I think, I think this was really kind of, uh, it was, uh, at the core of podcasts in the beginning where they were so educational. It, it felt like yeah. there were podcasts on all these topics that outside of that, it was hard to find that kind of information. And again, the, I think the reason they've become so successful, there's just something different about listening to two people have a conversation about something versus say reading an article yeah. where you're getting, you know, you're getting one person's thoughts or it's just different, right? Everybody knows. Mm -hmm. and, and anybody listening to this is obviously buying into yeah. the idea of podcast. <laughs> so anyways, I was a fan and upland bird hunting was a part of my life and I was trying to kind of make it a bigger part of my life and just wondering like, you know, what ways could I do that? And it kind of just sort of slowly in my mind, like, and there were no upland bird hunting podcasts. Oh, back, wow. Back then. Yeah. There were none back then. Hardly any, if there That's was, crazy. I mean, I, I won't claim to, to have known everything, but there were very, very few, if any. And, mm -hmm. and then in 2015, there was one that got started Ron Bain, the hunting dog podcast. Many people may have heard of that. He's kind of been, like, we would refer to him as the OG sort of mm -hmm. in our space. And so he started up and I was like, gosh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a hunting podcast. And, and I started thinking, you know, I could, I could do this and, and this would be maybe a, a, a blend of, you know, me wanting to continue my education in upland bird hunting, to learn, to talk to people and a format that suited me. And it just, that kind of idea hung around. Like, I don't, I don't act on things too quickly. Um, so it, it just was sort of in the back of my mind. And eventually I had, uh, I had a friend that was sort of working in the upland hunting space and he, he had a website and he asked me if I would consider hosting a podcast for his website, which hmm. was kind of the kick that I needed. And so that was project mm -hmm. upland. And when I started it in 2017, it was the Project Upland podcast, and it mm. was that for about its first four years of existence. It wasn't until a year ago that I kind of transitioned my career, started working for the shotgun company that I mentioned, Upland Gun Company, that I needed to make sure that I could take my podcast with me. So at that point, the name changed to Birdshot Podcast, and yeah, there you go. Today, um, yeah, I, I consider the working for Upland Gun Companies my day job, and and the Birdshot Podcast is is my my side hustle or my moonlighting. There's a lot of synergy between the two, and and it's uh it's really really cool the the overlap that I have with the two of them. Yeah, that is cool. And and was that transition when you kind of rebranded? Was that pretty uh, challenging to do, or how'd that look when you um, changed the name? It's definitely, I mean, somewhat challenging. Yeah, the la the last year has been. There were some things that. Um, you know, I wasn't doing much of the advertising or sponsorship stuff on that side of things when it was the Project Upland podcast. Um, so a little bit of a learning curve there, but really um, the show was, you know, I've host, produced, published, I've kind of done everything from start to finish um, 
from day one. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't a huge transition, and the show didn't really change. It was just a it was just kind of a rebranding, sort of a facelift. Um, but for the most part, you know, listeners kind of the same experience was maintained, and the whole back catalog is still there and everything. So it was a it, it could have been a lot worse, but it wasn't too bad. Not too bad. And who's your uh, so who hosts your podcast? What company do you use? Uh, Megaphone. Oh, Megaphone. Yeah. Yeah. Megaphone. Yep. I'm trying to think. I'm, I'm trying to think of the Megaphone. They're probably affiliated. I can't remember. They're owned by Spotify. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's Spotify. Yeah. That's right. And Spotify has been doing an amazing job. I mean, Apple Podcast still has a big chunk of listeners yep. out Crazy. there, but Spotify is number two now. And they've been just, they're doing a lot of great stuff for podcasts. I mean, especially helping new podcasters get into it. Right. That's what's awesome. Yeah. The one thing I will say is I have throughout the my five year history in the show, I have changed hosting platforms like three or four times. Oh wow. I would recommend not doing no, that. No, don't do that. It's a nightmare. Don't uh, do that. Yeah. When I first started in seventeen, I got I was like, I don't know what your experience was, but I was Googling around where do I host it? And at that time a lot of things were recommended. Lipson was one of them, but yep. it was not like the front runner, so to speak at that point. Um, so I ended up on blog talk radio uh, back in 2017 and did that for a year. And I don't even remember honestly at this time, what it was that got me thinking like, this is just not working out. But then I switched and then I Googled in 2018. And at that time it was like, you need to be on Lipson or you need to be on blueberry. One of those two and blueberry had an integrated WordPress app and plugin before everybody else did. And so I went with blueberry and I was on that for three years and then, uh, that was fine. But when I switched to birdshot I switched my website, so there was some stuff going on behind the scenes there. And then when I ultimately realized like I, I needed more, um, analytics and and stuff that that's what ultimately led me to megaphone when i when i did fully switch over uh birdshot last year so now i've been on megaphone i've been happy there but anybody thinking about starting a podcast get on a good one and don't change <laughs> yeah and don't change i know I, that's kind of the way i feel we've been with lipson since the that's start right. and yeah. and they've been great and they're I think they do some good educational stuff too, but uh, there's another one, you know, I always love to give a shout out to Buzzsprout who also oh, yeah. is kind of a little bit newer, but they've got some good educational stuff. So, um, and they make it really easy to get into it. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like we had a similar journey. I remember in mine, 2015, I was doing some stuff kind of in the online space and same as you, I was listening to podcasts and loving it. And I just set a goal like in 2015 that I'm going to start a podcast. And then exactly two years later, you know, the, the, our podcast <laughs> yeah. launched. So. Yeah. That's uh, that's about the same, same here. <laughs> same deal. Nice, nice. Well, let's just, uh, you know, we're going to take it out of here. I, I Just quickly, I, I want to talk about this. So, you know, without a dog, so you're hunting, like you said, you've got, yeah. say, whatever, you're kind of out there in the forest. So the, probably the good thing, you just kind of, like you said, find some habitat and just slowly hunt around. What, what would be one tip you give for somebody that's hunting without a dog, say, you know, out in your area or anywhere, anywhere around the country? Yeah, yeah, that's... That's a, that's a really great question and something I would want to know if I were in that situation with rough grouse, when it comes to hunting here, like slow was my friend. When I, when I was doing that, I was walking really slow and you'll hear people, if you do enough reading on rough grouse, you'll hear people say you walk through the woods and stop. And if you stop every hundred yards or so sooner or later, you're going to stop within the vicinity of a grouse. And when you stop, 
they get unsettled and are likely to move, make a sound or flush. And, and so that is a method that people will employ, especially if you don't have dogs, you walk a little bit and stop. And, you know, over time you, you learn what birdie looking cover is and areas. And so you start to get that sixth sense, no different than, than fishing or anything like that. But for just starting out, I, I slow, slow would be, that would be one thing I would recommend because the flip side of that is if you stroll along at a steady pace, you could walk within five or 10 feet of a grouse and they will just let you walk right by. Oh, wow. They'll, they'll stand like a statue. Right. You'll walk right by them and they won't move. So you want to kind of vary your pace and, yeah. and, and that kind of thing. And that's why people are saying to stop, um, to give you a, to give you some sort of an advantage because without a dog, the bird's got a lot more, a lot bigger advantage on you. I don't yeah. know if that, that same thing would apply to every, to every species. I I've thought about this, like knowing what I know now about sharp tails, I think I could probably go out and hunt sharp tailed grouse. Um, because my dogs have found so many for me in the last four years, I feel like I've seen enough of a pattern where I could go out and find them. But if I, hadn't hunted them with a dog, I really do think it would be, I'd, I'd be wanting to do some more reading and research. And that's one thing we've got a lot of access to between podcasts, YouTube videos, articles, blogs. You can, you can really do a deep dive on the habitat and the cover and the vegetation of any upland game bird species. And while that's maybe not for folks, always the most fun thing to do, I would highly encourage you to dive into some resources and really educate yourself on the bird and its its daily habits and routines as much as you possibly can to go out and chase them. And what'll happen is you'll you'll know more about the bird. You'll be better at finding them, but you also have a, a deeper appreciation for the bird. That's at least that's what I've found over the years. The more I understand about them and know about their habits and habitat, um, just the better the overall experience is for me. Right. And, and where is that? So those resources, is that kind of like uh, a book or podcast or, you know, there, there must be tons. What would you recommend? What would be one resource that you might Yeah, I, mean, I guess it depends. Yeah. I mean, if you like podcasts, don't hesitate to, to Google the species and podcasts. Uh, there's probably something out there, you know, because, yeah, there's the Upland Bird podcast space has grown just like every other podcast space. So so that's one for folks listening to this show. Uh, but I like books. There's lots of, lots of great books on upland. And again, this, you know, these are old pastimes, right? Like people have been chasing these birds and the, the science and technology around chasing game birds with dogs and double guns hasn't really changed a whole lot in the last 120 years. So what somebody was doing a hundred years ago probably still applies, you know, evolution and habitat doesn't, doesn't change these birds that fast. So don't be afraid to go out. And I've been doing a lot this summer going on Amazon and buying books on sharp-tailed grouse. And, you know, some species are covered more than others, but there are some great books out there that you can pick up for three, four five bucks that are going to tell you really everything you need to know before you go start getting some real world experience to synthesize that all with. But, um, yeah, books are a great one. And then we're starting to see some YouTube channels and I will say YouTube is great because what you can do is actually see the cover. That's the big one. It's like, it's even as much as I 
understand and know grouse cover, it's, it can be hard to explain. So Google rough grouse hunting, or I mean on YouTube, go rough grouse hunting, yeah. sharp-tailed grouse hunting, and, and don't be afraid to throw the state in there that you're, that you're wanting to mm-hmm. hunt in because that habitat will change from state to state. That can give you a, a visual picture of the stuff that you're reading about and listening about. And so that kind of three-pronged approach, I mean, somebody starting out today is in a much better position than somebody was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So, yeah, yeah. YouTube is awesome. So there's something out there. Yeah. And I, I did uh, also, this is another good resource, right? I'm not sure if you're still affiliated. Is, is Onyx, is that something that you're connected with? Oh yeah. Yeah. Onyx hunt. Yeah. So they do, they sponsor my podcast. They're a partner on my show. So consider me biased, but I can honestly tell you if, if I didn't have a relationship with Onyx, I would not be caught without it. It, it has totally changed the game as far as being able to be as efficient as possible. You know, we all have limited time to be in the outdoors and the amount of knowledge crammed into that application, as far as like land ownership and access, um, it's, it's, it's incredible. So yeah, I, I have Onyx, uh, got the Onyx elites, all 50 States, whatever Mm -hmm. you decide, you know, if you, it, it becomes a, here's a, here's a thing that makes it a no brainer for upland bird hunters. In the, in the past, what folks would typically have to buy is what's called a plat book, county plat book. Mm-hmm. I don't know if fishermen buy those things, but no, yeah. that's, that's telling you the land ownership of all, these, of all these properties. And you would have to go down to the county courthouse or right. you, know, you could order it or whatever. But they're usually like $30 or $40 for one county plat book. Oh, wow. And, and when Onyx came along, and, and it took them a little while to get you know, to get their feet under them and get all of the data, but it very quickly became, you're now paying $30 for the land ownership information of an entire state. That's crazy. That's the cost of one plat book that gets outdated, you know, tomorrow. And Onyx is, you know, you pay one price for Onyx and they continue to update it. Um, Yeah. Again, there's so much value crammed in there, but to know where you are, to know that you're hunting public land and mm-hmm. then you throw in all of the tracking and waypoints and stuff that you can do. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. they've got satellite imagery. Like I, I do a lot of satellite imagery. Look, you can identify cover that you wouldn't be able to see from the road. Uh, lots of bird hunters use satellite imagery to find places to hunt. Uh, no different than any other, you know, big game hunter or anything like that. But yeah, I, uh, Onyx yeah. could not recommend highly enough. Yeah. That is a big one. Sure. That, that, yeah. that one, I think when you find it, you dig in, you realize, yeah, this is amazing. And it's, it's probably more accurate than a lot of some of the other stuff out there. Yeah. It makes it easy. Uh, and well, who is, I'm just curious, like Onyx, who's behind Onyx? You know, the whole founder, not that we're going to dig into that, but that has that been out there for a while? You know, I've, I've never met the founder, but I've, um, I've, met a few people one of them was like he was like the sixth or seventh employee i mean it was really really humble beginnings as far as i understand they they really were just i think this the person that found i'm forgetting his name but kind of just saw you know the the counties were starting to make this information available via a county website um you know and and it started around land ownership that was kind of the that was like the early problem that they were trying to solve i i believe and don't quote me on this but and so this person said i need to get this and and bring it in one place for the hunter you know and it was it very it came from a hunting 
a hunting place. Now there's, you know, they got Onyx off-road and they're expanding. And yep. the, you know, I know realtors that use Onyx, you know, like the, their platform exactly. is, is so diverse and has such a wide ranging. I mean, the sky is the limit for them, but it, it came from, from hunters, you know, for hunters, by hunters, for hunters kind of thing. And yeah, it, uh, it just, it really, really grew. And I think obviously the, where it where it quickly sort of hit that it started out on chips that you would put in your Garmin, you know. So oh, right. you're taking your Garmin GPS sure. into an area with no cell service. Well, what has really helped Onyx is obviously now everybody's got a a high powered computer in their pocket, yep. smartphone that can run this stuff, and you get service in a lot of areas too. So you can use this stuff on the fly. And so as technology has improved, that platform has has incredibly improved. And I do all my mapping on the phone because I'll use the computer version for doing scouting for this trip that I've got this week. You just a bigger screen and, and it's so awesome. I mean, everything syncs now. So anything I do on my computer syncs to my phone, uh, you can download offline maps. I mean, but the one thing I will say is like the confidence that you have to, especially in the, in, in the fourth, you know, you go, I go out to North Dakota, I park the truck, I walk a mile into the grass. I can turn around and still see my truck sitting there. Well, in the grouse woods, that's a different story. You know, you're, you can, you've got to be, obviously you have to be, be safe out there and know that you can get back to your truck. So the ability to mark your truck and see where you are in the cover, um, and open up that Onyx phone and, and see where you are. You're not just looking at a map. I mean, that's, that's the big difference with this little device is that you can see where you are so you can see okay i've got to go around this swamp or i want to go up here down there all that to say that gives you a lot of confidence to get out into these wild places where these birds lived and that has allowed me to become a much more efficient hunter now i can't say that without saying it's it's an electronic device it's technology we've got to have our compass we've got it we've got it in the grouse woods the way i do it is i always have usually two compasses on me. And I know if I park on an east west road and I head north into this bird cover, I I will know like yeah. if if the S hits the fan, I've got to head south to get out of here. You know, mm-hmm. I know my bailout direction to hit that road. So we don't ever fully trust our no. electronic devices, but the, for the most part, that's what I'm using ninety nine percent of the time. Perfect. Perfect. Well, let's just take it out of here in the, um, I always loved uh, when I can, uh, your podcast, it sounds like you listen to podcasts. So what are your most recent podcasts you've listened to? If you say maybe your top three or, or something like that. That's, that's a great question. I've, I've got some that, that come in and out of my rotate. Usually I listen to at least one episode of the Joe Rogan podcast oh, yeah. every week. Yeah. Um, definitely, definitely one of my favorites. Um, and you know, some, a way that, you know, a podcast that mine has sort of been modeled after in some ways. Another hunter, right? Like Rogan, he's a, yeah, he's a hunter. Yeah. Have you, now here's another question. Well, let, uh, just on the, the, the people you get, cause we're going to probably going to miss this one, but you know, Rogan obviously is like the biggest podcaster in the world. Is he somebody that if you could get him on your show, you'd be interested in chatting with? I mean, I've listened to him enough to know. I don't think he has any interest in these little birds that I. Oh, he doesn't. <laughs> he's not a bird hunter. Carried away. That's I right. Mean, well, he did a, I mean, he did a, I really think that I think that his hunting interviews were the things that caught my, I don't know when I started listening to his show, but that did catch my attention. It was like, Oh wow. He's interviewing Steven Ronella or whatever way back when. Um, and so I, that's what got me started to listen to him. But more importantly, like some of the very first podcasts that I started listening to back in 2012 or whenever that was, 
they were more related to like uh performance or nutrition or that kind of stuff which that's my favorite thing about rogan is he one week it's he's talking about hunting and then the next week he's talking about human performance and fitness and nutrition you know i love that stuff um i'm just kind of diverse in my interests in that way so yeah that's what why i appreciate him i would sure i'd love to talk to him about bird hunting but i know he did a they did a turkey hunt on on one of the episodes he did with steven rinella oh yeah and it just it seemed it was him and brian callen and they were they were there they kind of seemed like what are we out here chasing these birds around for that's awesome uh, but you know he loves his he loves his elk yeah i think that's who got him started i think that's who got ranella started was rogan right from the beginning i think he's the one yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. i listened to some of the other the other uh there's other upland bird hunting podcasts and again as we talked about throughout the conversation like i've got a pretty specific um, knowledge base and interest in hunting rough grouse in this part of the world but when i go to when i go to other areas or i like to learn about other birds you know i listen to other shows for that because there's other people that have experience with different birds and that kind of thing so yeah that's perfect nice nick well uh, this has been a lot of fun i think uh you know like a lot of these things you probably feel the same way you could talk for another hour or so right yeah. it's, it's all sorts of great times but i appreciate you uh expanding on uh you know grouse hunting for sure and just upland yeah. bird in general and uh yeah well we'll be sending people your way if they have questions for you at uh, the uh, birdshotpodcast.com and uh, yeah i just want to thank you for coming on today Dave, I really appreciate it. I enjoyed chatting with you. And like I said, I enjoyed uh, enjoyed listening to that episode you did with Terry about Ontario and fishing. And uh, it's one of the cool things about podcasts. You can kind of jump into another another world, you know, for 60 minutes or so. And I appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you about bird hunting. Always happy to share. And thanks for the opportunity, man. So there it is. You can go to wetflyswing.com slash 373 right now. 373 will get you the goods. Quick reminder and question. If you have a hunting topic or just a topic in the outdoor space, something in general you'd love me to dig into, I'd love to hear about it from you. You can send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. Check in with me there and just uh, just put a in the subject line, just say episode and let me know what you think is there anything we've been missing uh, maybe that's another fly fishing episode if you have anything coming up just give me a heads up and uh, and i am going to do my best to get that on for you i'm going to get out of here because we got a trip coming up i got to get out of town so i'm going to cut this one short and sweet and i am not gonna i'm not gonna fluff it around right now so i hope that you i hope that you are having a great great evening great morning or good afternoon wherever you are and i hope to catch you on the water or maybe online talk to you soon thanks for listening to the wet fly swing fly fishing show for notes and links from this episode visit wetflyswing.com